All right, if you have your Bible, please open it to Hosea chapter 11. If you don't have your Bible, you can probably find one in one of the seats in front of you. And if you're using that seat Bible, you'll find Hosea 11 on page 642. Hosea chapter 11. You sit in the courtroom supporting the grieving, traumatized couple. It, it was almost too much to hear recounted in graphic detail what the man in chains in front of the courtroom had done to them, to their family, to their lives. Then the sentence is passed. It, it's every bit as harsh as the prosecutor had demanded. You feel a huge relief, a wave of satisfaction. At least justice has been done. You sit in the courtroom. The grief and trauma are still fresh. The grief and trauma that began when you got that call you had hoped would never come. You knew your son was on a bad path. So many times he'd broken your heart, disappointed your expectations. You had endured so many sleepless nights and, and so much worry. So many what ifs and where did we go wrongs and what should we have done differently? Yet you had always chased away the, the fear and the dread, hoping that it would never come to this. But now it has. It's your son in chains in the front of the courtroom. The sentence is passed. It's every bit as harsh as the prosecutor demanded. You, you feel all cut up inside, a, a heaviness in the pit of your stomach, uh, shame and grief and, and regret. You're torn. He, he is guilty. He, he does deserve this, your head tells you, but he's your baby, your heart says. It's so hard to see your child suffer, and there's nothing you can do to fix it, to make it better. Couldn't the judge have at least been more lenient? The same courtroom. The identical trial and conviction of the same guilty man. Why is it that we who are parents feel so different in the second situation compared to the first? What is it about being the parents that causes you to view the same evil in such a different light with so much more compassion mingled into all the other feelings we feel? Maybe it's because our kids reflect us. They bear our name. They have our genes in most cases. Everyone knows we're the ones who raised them. So our children's behavior reflects on us. Our heads hang in disgrace when they are disgraced. Our hearts swell with pride when they achieve honors. For better or for worse, lots of our identity is wrapped up in how they turn out. Or maybe it's because we have so much invested in our kids. So much love, so much time, so much money. All those nights of lost sleep, all the, the uh, lessons we, we tried to teach them and the advice we tried to give them. We weren't perfect parents, granted, but, but we like to think we did the best we could. A and so who they are now reflects so much of us, so much of what we've invested. Or maybe it's something that's just more of a gut level or a heart level thing. It's just that we can't help but love our kids. 
We can't help but feel connected to them, to to feel their pain and, and their hurt, to feel compassion toward them. How many times have parents watched their kids go through suffering and said, I wish I could have taken it for them. I wish it could have been me instead of them. Whatever the reason, we very likely feel quite differently toward the handcuffed man in the front of the courtroom when that man is our son. It's a trauma we hope and we pray as parents that we never have to go through. Yet, in today's passage, we learn that it's a trauma that God has endured. In today's passage, God compares himself to a parent and his people to a wicked child, and many interpreters believe the setting is a courtroom. Only in God's case, the plot's even thicker because God is not only the grieving parent, but also the prosecutor against his child. And to understand this, we have to go back to an Old Testament law written in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21. There in Deuteronomy we read, If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of the town, which was where court proceedings took place. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Now by our standards today, this is a shocking command, right? It's so common for children to rebel today. We almost think it's a rite of teenage passage that children are expected to rebel against their parents. Well, two thoughts on this. First, uh, as far as I can tell from my limited knowledge of cultural anthropology, teenagerhood and the all-too-common rebellion which comes with it is a fairly recent phenomenon that we've created in our modern societies largely through our approach to education and to the media and to corporate marketing. That's not to say adolescence hasn't always been a challenging time, and it's not to say that teenagers didn't occasionally rebel. It's just to say that what used to be the exception has now become closer to the norm. And because we've gotten so used to rebelliousness, we forget how serious God is about the importance of children honoring their parents. But second, I don't think this passage is talking about run-of-the-mill rebellion. It's talking about a child who has completely gotten out of control so that the parents who are charged and tasked in that culture with overseeing this child can't do their job. And so this child is becoming a menace to society and something must be done. Even so, though, don't you wonder how often this law was really carried out? Because as we've just been thinking about, as parents, we just can't help loving and feeling compassion toward our own children. It's just natural for us to feel that way. And so think of the lengths a child would have to go to to so damage and alienate their parents that their parents felt they had no choice but to bring their child to the village court for sentencing and perhaps capital punishment. It must have happened only in the most extreme cases. And perhaps God knew that when he wrote this law. That it would only usually be exercised after great mercy and patience had been extended because how else would parents who 
God puts in charge of these proceedings, how else would they handle such a situation involving their own flesh and blood? Well, in today's passage in Hosea 11, we find God as the traumatized, grieving parent who after exhausting all other options is actually bringing his rebellious child to court. Laying out the evidence of, of all the ways his, his child has been continuously stubborn and rebellious, refusing to respond to his discipline. And also all the ways that God has been a good parent. God hasn't exasperated or alienated his child. No, he has lovingly cared for this child like any good parent would. And so first in our passage, God recounts all the good that he's done for his child. Verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I saw my people in slavery in Egypt and I loved them. I felt compassion for them in their suffering. And so I went to great lengths to rescue them. Verse 3. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arm. Ephraim, by the way, is like a synonym for Israel. God is saying, I've, I've taught my people Israel to walk, holding their hand as they toddled around. This perhaps refers to God's patience with his people in the desert with Moses, feeding them, caring for them, giving them laws to teach them how to behave, forgiving their sins when they turned against him, then guiding them into the promised land, raising up judges to teach them and correct them and deliver them. Then as they settled into the land and grew up there into a mature kingdom, God gave them kings to rule over them and priests to teach them, prophets to correct and warn and encourage them, sages to teach them wisdom. As they grew, God was lovingly teaching his people to walk. Then in verse 4, God momentarily changes the analogy from that of, that of a parent and child to that of a farmer caring for his animals. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. God is not like a farmer who's harsh with his livestock, but rather he treats them, we would use the word today, humanely. Leading them, as it were, with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. God's laws, God's instructions are not meant to restrain or to restrict us out of cruelty, but, but rather lovingly to, to lead us in the ways that we should go to train us up, to guide us, to steer us in right ways, in good ways, in loving ways. Verse 4 continues, To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bend down to feed them. And the Hebrew text is unclear at this point, and so some English translations have, I was like one who lifts the yoke from their neck, and I bend down to feed them. So it's not clear if the analogy is still of the farmer lovingly taking the yoke off the neck of his cattle or whether it's the parent lovingly lifting a young child up to his cheek. But either way, the imagery is of tender compassion and loving nurture. So then God gets done with all that and then he continues before the court with his accusation. Consider how my child has responded to my care, to, be, uh, to my diligent parenting. Verse 2. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. Verse 3, they did not realize it was I who healed them. Verse 7, my people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God Most High. 
God's complaint against his child in court is all the more compelling when you realize what was happening at the time Hosea the prophet was delivering this message from God to his people. Many scholars believe this period was around 525 BC during the reign of the last Israelite king, King Hoshea. And this was a time of instability when six kings had just risen and fallen in rapid succession, several of them getting the throne by conspiring and murdering the guy who was on the throne before them. And Israel by this time had little use for the Lord and was looking to other gods like the Canaanite god Baal for protection and for stability and for provision. They were like a child who rejects his parents and tags around with some other adult who that adult gives this child favors and provides for their needs, but only to corrupt them and to lure them into destruction. So Israel is seeking help and, and favor from these other gods, these other parental figures, and they've thrown out God, their parents' standards, and they've rejected God's instruction, particularly the, prophet tells us, uh, the prophets tell us elsewhere that, that the rich among God's people have been mercilessly oppressing the poor. And so God ha- has disciplined his people at, by this time by allowing the empire of Assyria to grow in influence over them to the point now where they are forced to pay tribute to Assyria and uh, to submit to Assyria's control. This was a consequence. It was a wake-up call for them. But instead of turning back to the Lord or, or trusting him, The people run all the faster after other gods. They turn to their own desires, their own devices to solve their problems. King Hoshea, for example, decides that he's going to stop paying tribute. He's going to rebel against Assyria and he's going to turn diplomatically to Egypt to help him. After all, he reasons, Egypt and her gods are going to be more help than the Lord is. This is how God's people treat their parents who, who rescued them, who raised them, who nurtured them, and loved them time and again. And so Hoshea rebels against Assyria, and guess how Assyria is going to respond to his rebellion? Well, the history books tell us in 722 BC, Assyria is going to come and destroy Israel and take them into captivity. And God says, this logical consequence will be my doing. Verses 5 to 7, or 5 and 6. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. This is the judge's verdict. Of course, in this case, God is not only the accusing parent, but also the judge. How could it be otherwise? Because what other higher justice is there for God to appeal to than to himself? So he's wearing a lot of hats in this morning's passage. The case has been heard. The facts have been established. The child is guilty as accused. And now the punishment will fit the crime. When Israel was a child, God had lovingly led them out of Egypt. Egypt had enslaved them and cruelly oppressed them. But God had come and rescued them and and, uh, lovingly parented them. But now they prefer Egypt's help to God's help. So God will send them back to Egypt, figuratively speaking. Only this time their Egypt will be Assyria. And so they will suffer the cruel exile and the captivity of Assyria. So God passes judgment. His child is guilty. The punishment is exile. Case closed. But wait. 
Then we come to verse 8. And now God, as a parent, speaks, bursting out, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim are the lesser-known sister cities to Sodom and Gomorrah, who were famously destroyed forever with burning sulfur for their great sin in the days of Abraham. How can I treat you like those cities, God says? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. God is now the compassionate parent crying out in the courtroom, No, no, you can't do this to my child. Please give them a lighter sentence. Okay, yes, they're guilty. So send them into exile, but don't let it last forever. Don't let it be final. Have mercy. Let them serve the term and then set them free. And so God the judge, who's also God the parent, relents and decrees an end to the exile. Verse 10. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. That's from exile. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. The punishment will be temporary. Then, like a fierce lion, God will roar his command and his people will be brought back from exile and settled in their homes again. Why? Because God is a parent to his people and good parents can't help but love their children. Maybe it's because God's children reflect him. We bear his name. Everyone knows he's the one who raised us. So our behavior reflects on him. His head hangs in disgrace when we are disgraced. His heart swells with pride when we achieve honors. For better or for worse, lots of God's reputation is wrapped up in how we turn out. Or maybe it's because God has so much invested in his kids. So much love, so much time, so much money. All those years of lost sleep, so to speak at least. All the sacrifices God made, all the lessons he tried to teach us, the advice he tried to give us. And so who we are now reflects so much on God, so much that he's invested. Or maybe it's something that's just more of a gut level, heart level thing. It's just that God can't help but love his kids. He can't help but feel connected to us, to feel our pain and our hurt, to feel compassion toward us. How many times has God watched his child go through suffering and said, I wish I could have taken it for them. I wish it could be me instead of them. You see, God actually loves us. Like a parent loves a child, even a rebellious wayward child, God cannot give up on us. God will not let us go. As I was preparing for this message, this line in verse 9 really struck me and surprised me. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. That struck me because often we associate God's holiness with his overpowering purity and his, his justice and his wrath. 
But, but here, God seems to be saying his holiness is the reason he can't help but be compassionate. After all, holiness means otherness. It means uncommon, different, special. So in other words, a holy God is not like us. And how is God not like us? In this case, God is different from us in that God can't help but have mercy on his people. The truth is we aren't always merciful, even as parents sometimes. We, we can imagine situations where, where children have been so rebellious, have so broken the hearts of their parents, have brought so much grief and, and shame to them that the parents give up in, in bitterness and just say, fine, you are not my child anymore. I disown you. You're dead to me. Right? Even a parent's great love for his child, her child, has its limits. It, it, it has its breaking point. But not God's. Because God is not like us. God is holy, set apart, other. God is not like a man whose compassion might fail. God will never give up on his children. Never. So, if you're a child of God, because you follow Jesus Christ, God's son, and so you share in the sonship that Christ enjoys with uh, his father, then God will never give up on you. I, I've told this story before, but I think it bears repeating. Um, it's told by Patrick Morley in his book, Man with the Mirror. He tells about a group of fishermen who landed on a secluded bay in Alaska and had a great day of uh, fishing for salmon. But when they returned in the evening to their seaplane, it was aground because the tide had gone out. And they had no uh, option except to wait until the next morning to try to take off once the tide had lifted it back into the water. But when they took off, they only got a few feet off the ground and then they crashed back down into the sea because when they'd been aground the day before, the, the pontoon had, had um, punctured on the rocks and had filled with water. And so now the seaplane was, was slowly starting to sink and, and the three men and a 12-year-old son of one of them, a boy named Mark, prayed and they jumped into the icy water to swim to shore, which was the only thing they could do. And the water was cold and the riptide was strong and two of the men reached the shore exhausted. They looked back and their companion, who was also a strong swimmer, did not swim to shore because his 12-year-old son was not strong enough to make it. And so they saw this father with his arms around his son being swept out to sea. He chose to die with his son rather than to live without him. And that's the kind of love God has for his children. Country singer Lyle Lovett captures this love and what it means for us in a song called God Will. Who keeps on trusting you when you've been cheating and spending your nights on the town? Who keeps on saying that he still wants you when you're through running around? And who keeps on loving you when you've been lying, saying things aren't what they seem? God does, but I don't. God will, but I won't. That's the difference between God and me. And who says he'll forgive you and says that he'll miss you and dream of your sweet memory? God does, but I don't. God will, but I won't. And that's the difference between God and me. There's actually some good theology there. <laughs> God is holy and we are not. And so God is far more loving than we are. 
And yet, as we've been learning these past weeks, God is seeking to make we who are his children a whole lot more like him than Lyle Lovett seems ready for. <laughs> God has now set his own spirit in our hearts to, to give us God's character, to, to give us his heart of love, the fruit of the spirit. God is birthing a love in our hearts for others, which is as strong and tenacious and tender as the undying love that God extends to us. So by way of application, I just want to ask you a question and ask myself a question this morning. As we've looked at how God loves this morning, is this the way you are seeking to treat the people God has put in your life? You don't have to answer out loud. <laughs> if you are God's child, are you learning to love like your heavenly father loves? Uh, let me anticipate our benediction here, which we'll say together in a few minutes uh, and quote Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we saw last week, through God's spirit, God has put the seed of this kind of love in our hearts. So question, are we cultivating it? Are we allowing it to grow into fully formed fruit? That's what church is supposed to be about. A community of people who are God's children, we're supposed to be the one group that people can bump into and they can see what God is really like and what God's love really looks like. We're to be the ones who know clearly and without distinction that love for others is more important than our own career success or making money or maintaining a certain reputation or having our independence and getting our way. You could think of it this way. If I'm part of a group of, say, 12 people, and um, each one is looking out only for, each one of us is only looking out for ourselves, how many people are looking out for me? Do the math. One, right? Me. But if I'm part of a group of 12 people, and we're each looking out for each other, how many people are looking out for me? Well, at least 11. That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> That's the kind of group I want to be a part of. But of course, I can't wait for others to love that way. I, it's got to start with me. I've got to let that love that God has placed in me and shown toward me grow so that I can extend that love to others. And as we do that, we become more and more um, a group among whom God's love shines through. As Jesus said in uh, John 1335, I'll close with this. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray. God, your love um, is so holy and other that we find it hard to believe that it's true. And even if we can intellectually believe it's true, we find it hard in our hearts to believe and to accept that it's really true of us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our heart that we would know together with all the saints how wide 
and high and long and deep is the love of God expressed to us through Jesus Christ. And I pray um, that you would transform our hearts and give us the vision and the strength to cause that seed of love in our hearts to grow so that it can spill out to others, both those are, who are easy to love, but we sometimes get lazy, we take them for granted, and also the people who are really tough to love that we really need your help to love. We just confess we don't have your heart, but we know that you're changing us into your children, into your image. We pray that you would make us a people of love. Amen.